Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm actually the youth pastor at uh, East Bay Trinity Chinese Church, for those of you who don't know me. Um, so if you were hoping, if you're new today and we're hoping to hear Pastor Sam, I'm sorry to disappoint. On the bright side, it just means that next week you can visit again and Pastor Sam will hopefully be here. Now let's uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Our uh, text today is Psalm 87. Psalm 87. And these are the words of the Lord. Psalm 87, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. May be seated. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to your word. Uh, we know that it is your Holy Spirit that grants not only understanding, but also the desire to hear and obey and to love you. And so we pray and ask for your help now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, for many people, where you were born... It says a lot about you. And this is why, even after maybe moving away for many years, people will still claim the city of their birth. I'm from New York City. Or I was born in L.A. I'm from San Francisco. Or even now, people are very much interested in finding out you know, their roots or where, where they came from or where their ancestors came from. Well, in the Bible... It does matter where you were born, not so much physically, but spiritually. And that's what this psalm before us is about. Psalm 87 is a song that celebrates the city of God. Now, in the Old Testament context, it's clear that this song, or this psalm, is about Jerusalem. You see in verse 2, it says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And Zion was another name for Jerusalem. And so we're told here that of all the cities in Jacob, that is in Israel, Jerusalem is especially beloved by God. And that's what we read in verse 1 and 2. Now, why is that? 
What's so glorious, what's so beloved about this city? And when we think about the things that make for a glorious city, we might think of its architecture or its history. We think about an ancient city like Rome or even London. Or maybe we think about you know, the job opportunities. That's why so many people want to live in the Bay Area. Or you might think about its arts and its culture. Some people might even boast about its you know, public transportation or the city government. But that's not what the psalmist celebrates about the city founded by God. And take a closer look at Three to four, it says, Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And then it goes on to say, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. This psalm has a little, kind of an interesting style to it. It's uh, it's It's almost kind of cryptic and Wondering, what, what, is, what is this saying? This one, that one was born there. Well, an Israelite reader would instantly recognize these names as names of foreigners, even enemies of Israel. Okay, so Rahab, in the Bible, Rahab is not just the name of the prostitute who helped the Israelites. Uh, Rahab is actually another name for Egypt in the Bible. Okay, so sometimes you will see this, uh, talking about this Rahab, and this Rahab is compared to a sea monster. Well, the, the Bible is actually talking about the empire of Egypt. Okay, so Rahab is another name for Egypt. And what about Babylon? Well, later on in Israel's history, ba- the Babylonians were the ones who came and destroyed Jerusalem. They were the ones who destroyed the temple and, and brought Judah into exile. Philistia and Tyre, and these are also familiar names. These are, these are enemies that are closer to the borders of Israel. Right? The Philistines, of course, is famous for uh, Goliath, the giant, who's a Philistine. And finally, Cush. Well, what does Cush represent? Well, Cush represents foreigners from lands that are further off. And so some, uh, some translators think that Cush refers to the Ethiopians. And in any case, these are all names of empires or peoples who are outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem. But Psalm 87 says that all these people will be among those who know God. See, that's what verse 4 says. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush. Among those who know me, that's that's God speaking. God is saying, among those who know me, I count these people. Some from Egypt, some from Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush. But there's even more than that. Psalm 87 also says that uh, these people were born there. uh, Verse 4, the very last Part of verse 4 says, This one was born there, they say. Now, born where? What are they talking about? 
Well, think about it again. What, what is the topic of the song? Well, the topic of the song is the holy city. It's Jerusalem. It's the city of God. And so, somehow, it will come to pass that these four nations will not only know God, but they will also be counted as natural-born citizens of the city of God. See, there will be Babylonians and Philistines of whom it will be said, this one and that one were born in Zion, in God's holy city. I see, one of the misconceptions that people may sometimes have about the Bible is that, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, God was the God of the Jews only. And it was only in the New Testament when God becomes the God of everyone. But that's not true. And, and Psalm 87 is an example. You see, already in Psalm 87, we see that the Bible is looking forward to a day when people from every nation, every tribe, will be citizens of the city of God. In verse uh, 5 to 6, it makes this clear. It says, And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High will es- himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples that this one was born there. <clears throat> uh, the picture here is of God you know, taking a census, maybe, or perhaps even writing names down in a book or a genealogy of the city of God. And it's as if, in these verses, it's as if the, the psalmist is seeing all these people who are being counted, they're streaming out of Zion, and he can't keep track of them all. He says, this one and that one were, were born in her. People from all over the place are, are being counted as being born in the city of God. Um, it's kind of like that, for, for you younger people, it's, it's kind of like that, um, you know, that you get a dollar meme? And it's like, you get a dollar, and you get a dollar, and everyone gets a dollar. That's, that's kind of the sense of what is going on here. It's saying, this one was born in Zion, and that one was born in Zion. They were all born in Zion. And so, in other words, it's not just Egypt and Babylon Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. But you can also imagine the psalmist seeing and counting people that he doesn't even recognize. People from maybe Greece, and then Rome, and then people from America, India, China, Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and perhaps even people from other nations and countries that are yet in our future, that are still yet unknown. Of all these, it will be said that, look, this one and that one and that one, they were born in the holy city. And there are people from everywhere. And at the same time, God knows each of them individually and by name. Now, one commentary puts it this way, the Lord transcends human identities to include all peoples. And he knows each of them individually as he records them in his books. And that's what's so glorious about this city of God. It's not the, the architecture. It's not the, you know, the city government or the public transportation. It's not the BART system or whatever. No, it's, it's all these people that God is bringing into his city. 
In the final verse of our psalm points again to this idea of celebration. There's singers and dancers who are saying, All my springs are in you. We're back to these glorious things that are being spoken of the city of God. And the final glorious thing that's spoken of the city is that all my springs are in you. This is, again, this is another interesting line. Uh, Suddenly, we have this idea of springs coming from the city of God. Um, Well, uh, we'll return to this at at the end of our message. But let me, uh, again, summarize briefly. Psalm 87 celebrates a day when all peoples will know God. And in that day, no matter where they were born physically, or what their background was, what their ethnicity was, they will all be counted as being born in the city of God. Now, as we've been discussing this, perhaps you're beginning to realize well, this can't be talking about any earthly city. Right? No human city fits this description of the city of God. Not New York, not San Francisco or Los Angeles, not even the current Jerusalem that exists in Israel today. And that's the point. You see, the words of these psalms are not fulfilled in an earthly city built by man, but in the heavenly city built by God. You see, the earthly Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem where the Temple of Solomon was built, and where the ruins of the temple still are today, that earthly Jerusalem that the psalmist celebrates is is but a type or a shadow of the heavenly Jerusalem, which is to come. And various passages in the New Testament speak towards this. Uh, let me just point you to uh, two brief examples. In Galatians 4:26, the apostle Paul writes, "But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother." Now Paul says that those who are only citizens of the earthly Jerusalem are still imprisoned under sin. But anyone who is a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem has been freed. Here's another example. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 has been called the Hall of Faith. It's a list of these Old Testament saints who exemplified faithfulness, who were examples of trusting in God. And listen to uh, what Hebrews chapter 11 says. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. It says this, um, it's talking about these Old Testament saints. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
See, these Old Testament saints who trusted in God, who followed him, people like Abraham and Moses and Gideon and Samson and David, they were not looking for an earthly city. Right, Hebrews said if they, if they were looking for, for where they came from, they wouldn't have a chance to go back. No, they were looking forward to a heavenly city. And so you see, our identity as Christians is not defined primarily by our city of physical birth. It's not defined primarily by our you know, particular ethnic or cultural background. No, it's defined by our citizenship in the heavenly city. That is where our hope and our identity lie. So, well, what, what is this heavenly Jerusalem? Then? What is this heavenly city of God? Well, again, the, the Bible is clear. Now, the heavenly Jerusalem is the church. The heavenly Jerusalem is the bride and the body of Christ. The heavenly Jerusalem is the people of God. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 21. If you have been here for a while and if you've heard me preach in the past, you know that uh, I had preached a little bit in Revelation. Uh, just the first, I think, uh, chapters 2 to 3. That's because, you know, I promised Pastor Sam that I would stay away from the controversial parts of Revelation. Well, it turns out that you can never stay away from Revelation for too long. It uh, always draws you back in. So that's why, sorry, Pastor Sam, uh, that's why we're back to Revelation uh, chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 9, it says this, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, uh, he came and, and spoke to me, saying, and here it is, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Oh, just like the mountain of Psalm 87, verse 1, the mount on which the Lord founded the city. He, he carried me to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, so the, the angel says to John, John, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And we know the bride is the church, the people of God. And then so, what does he show John? Well, he shows John a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. See, this Jerusalem is not built on the earth, but it comes down to the earth from heaven. It is called the Bride of Christ. You see, the heavenly Jerusalem is not a city defined by a particular location on a map by its physical borders. And rather, it's a city defined by its people. That is the people who trust, who worship, and obey Jesus. And becoming a citizen of this new Jerusalem does not happen by being born naturally or physically. It happens by being born again spiritually through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Psalm 87 reminds us that this city, the church, is especially loved by God, more than all the cities of the world. Now, as remarkable as it is that God loves the church, 
his city, it's even more remarkable to think of the kind of people that God has chosen to populate his city. You see, citizenship in the city of God, as, as we mentioned, is not something that you can buy or achieve for yourself. This has to be something that God does for you. What do I mean by that? Well, I remember if you go back to Psalm 87, remember all that all the peoples mentioned by Psalm 87, Rahab and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, these were once enemies of Israel. They're enemies of the people of God. Egypt enslaved the Israelites. Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem and Judea. Well, how is it that these enemies of Israel can be counted as natural-born citizens? Well, the reason is given to us in Psalm 87, verse 5. It tells us that the Most High himself will establish her. The Most High himself will establish Jerusalem. In other words, it is God who takes these enemies and makes them citizens. It's not within our power to change the heart of an enemy, but God can do it. And so, in other words, Psalm 87 is saying that Jerusalem is glorious because God has turned those who are once enemies into citizens. And this is exactly what God has done in the church. You see, we have to recognize we were once those enemies. Our inborn state is to be rebels against God. And the proof of this is that every man, woman, and child, from the greatest to the least, every one of us sins. There is no one who does not sin. There is no one who does not disobey the good and righteous commands of God. And so, by birth, by our mere physical birth, none of us has a right to enter the city of God. By birth, we are all spiritual Philistines or Babylonians. We are natural citizens of the kingdom of darkness. So how then can we enter this holy city? And the answer is, it is the free gift of God. It's by God's grace. It's by God's grace that we who were once enemies are now counted as citizens. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and to be raised again. And whoever trusts in Jesus has their sins forgiven. Whoever trusts in Jesus has been born again in the city of God. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So Paul says, no one who is unrighteous can have a claim to God's kingdom. And then he goes on to say, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, here's the problem. All of us fit somewhere 
in that list of unrighteousness. All of us were once immoral, or idolaters, adulterers, thieves, revilers, or swindlers. But do you catch what Paul said in that same passage? This is verse 11. He says, such were some of you. He says, that's what you once were. You were once an enemy of God. You were once disobedient. But God took you. He washed you. And then he set you apart for his kingdom. What a glorious thing it is to be once an enemy of God, yet now considered his child. What a glorious thing it is to once be at war with God, but now be at peace with him. What a glorious thing it is to once be lost in the outer darkness, but to now be welcomed into the communion of saints and angels. And you may say, well, I'm not sure if this is for me. I, I don't know if I'm dressed to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know if I'm dressed to enter his holy city. I've, I've sinned too much. God could never forgive me. I've hurt too many people. Or I have too much hurt in my past. I don't even know if, who this Jesus is. I don't know if, if I can believe in him. Well, if you go back to the vision of the heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, um, you'll see that the gates of this city are never closed. That's uh, ch- Revelation chapter 21, verse 25. The gates of this city are never closed. In, o- in other words, no one who desires to enter the city will be shut out. And all you need to do is come and ask the king the city. Come to Christ who was crucified, buried, and raised again to indestructible life. His death is of infinite worth to cover all your sin and shame and rebellion. His life is of infinite abundance to give you true peace and true healing and wholeness. So come to the king and he will exchange your rags for pure and spotless garments. Now come to the king and he will give you living water so you never thirst again. Come to the king who will give you a home in his kingdom. Come to the king and you will also find your name written in his book such that he will also say of you, this one was born here in the city of God. This is the promise of Jesus Christ, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. If you call out to him, he will not withhold any of these gifts from you. So now, as we've said, this heavenly city is the new Jerusalem. It's, it's the church. And so this, what we've been talking about, what, what this psalm has been saying, it impacts how we live here and now. Because wherever Christians are, that's where the city of God is. You might say that uh, local churches are outposts of the heavenly city that is to come. And so I, I think this has direct practical implications to how we live. Because we're citizens of the heavenly king, uh, city. And so that means that even while we are here on earth, we are to live as citizens of heaven. 
So that means first and foremost, we should live as people who are reconciled to God. And we've already alluded to this when we said that God has turned enemies into citizens. And so this means that we should set aside worldly ways of living and habits of thought. We should confess our sins, repent, start walking in obedience to Jesus. But secondly, this means that we are also to live as people who are reconciled to one another. You see, the nations, once again, the nations listed in Psalm 87, they were not only enemies of Israel, they were also enemies of one another. A good example of this is uh, Egypt and Babylon. They were rival empires, and Israel was caught in the middle. Um, Egypt was to the south, Babylon was to the north, and Israel was caught in the middle. And so in the city of God, it's not only that enemies are reconciled to God, but on top of that, because these enemies are reconciled to God, they are also called to be reconciled to one another. Think about it. If God has forgiven us in Jesus, his son, then who are we to withhold forgiveness from others? Therefore, if we have something against one another in the church, we, we ought to go and seek reconciliation. You know, we don't gossip about it. We don't talk about it behind people's backs. We don't seek to hold grudges. We forgive each other as God in Christ forgave us. This is the true, this is the only foundation of real peace and reconciliation. You know, our, our secular culture tries to achieve this kind of unity and reconciliation, but, but it tries to achieve it apart from Christ. And we, we hear all these buzzwords now about you know, diversity and inclusion, but this is another example of a secular society trying to have the fruits of Christianity without having anything to do with Christ and his gospel. But ultimately, it won't work because you can't have a moral and just society without Christ. You can't hold different people groups. You can't hold enemies together without something to unite them and hold them together. And the only principle strong enough to reconcile enemies is the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the only king who has purchased the people from every nation by his death and resurrection. Now, of course, we're not saying that unbelievers can't have a, a temporary kind of unity. You know, obviously, we can unite around common goals like a group project at school, or at work, or sports teams, even sending someone to the moon. That's, those are remarkable things. However, the, the kind of unity that we are talking about where people from every tongue and tribe and nation are brought together and where enemies can truly forgive one another, where there's lasting peace, such unity and diversity can only be achieved through the gospel. This unity can't be achieved by HR departments or government mandates. 
This unity can only come when God brings enemies together into one body under one spirit. Where there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Now, we know that this unity will not be perfectly achieved until Christ returns. But in the meantime, the church is called to practice the unity that we have in Christ. Even though we may do it imperfectly. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells a divided church to be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. And we should strive to do the same. I'm not talking about becoming like a cult, you know, where everyone dresses the same, and talks the same, and thinks exactly the same thing. No, rather the, the, the like-mindedness, the unity that we are called to have is, is a unity of worship and worldview. Right? So over time, it should become more and more evident that despite our different backgrounds, we are becoming more of the same mind. And that mind should be the mind of Christ. You know, we may express things differently, but it should be obvious that we are all striving towards Christ's likeness. When it comes to important issues, it should be evident that we have similar values, which comes from the life that we share together. So towards that end, let us you know, support one another, share meals with them, one another, pray for one another, and bear each other's burdens. What is the common source of life? That is the foundation, the fountain of this unity. Well, it has to be the life that we have in Christ. It has to be the life that comes from Jesus. Now this brings us back to the last verse of Psalm 87. I promised we'd come back to it. Um, the last verse of Psalm 87, we have these singers and, and dancers, they, they're celebrating. And they say this odd statement, at least odd to us. He says, all my springs are in you. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, springs are an essential source of life. Right? You need water for your family and for your flocks. And so you need to find a spring or you need to dig a well. And that's why if, if you've ever read through Genesis, you notice that one of the struggles that you know, Abraham and Jacob and Isaac will have is these disputes over wells and springs. Um, we don't understand that much now, but, you know, again, uh, for someone living in the ancient Near East, spring is a source of life. It's, it's an image of, of life coming out from a single source. And so, so what is this saying when, when the singers and dancers celebrate all my springs are in you, all my springs are in the city of God? Well, it's saying that the entire life of Israel flows from Zion, flows from Jerusalem. And from an Old Testament perspective, again, that's not an inaccurate thing to say. Now think about it. What, what is that, you know, the heart of the city? Right, in the Bible, it talks about the your heart as the fountain or the spring of your life. Well, what's at the heart of a city? What was at the heart of Israel? 
Well, the answer is, well, the temple was at the heart of Jerusalem. Israel's life as a people flows directly from their worship and their relationship with God. Actually, the prophet Ezekiel picks up on this image in Ezekiel uh, chapter 47. In Ezekiel chapter 47, he, he sees this vision of a renewed temple. And out of this temple, there's this little trickle of water. It's, it's just a, a little bit at first, flowing out from under, the, from under the door of the temple. And then Ezekiel sees that as this water flows out, it grows deeper and deeper. It grows wider and wider. And pretty soon, it's this river that you can't, you can't even swim in. It's so deep. And wherever this river goes, it, it brings life. There's these trees that grow along its banks. Wherever it goes, the water is made fresh, and there's all these different kinds of fish that swim in it. Again, we read this, and we're like, what? What is he talking about? But again, this is, this is a wonderful picture of how worship of God is to flood and transform the world. It's a picture of the life that flows from this renewed temple. And again, this vision is fulfilled ultimately in the church, which is the city of God. I have to apologize to Pastor Sam again because we're going to take one last look at Revelation chapter 22. Take a look at Revelation chapter 22. At verses 1 through 2 it says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so we don't have time to go into all of this, but again, John John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the church. And what does he see coming out of it? From the very center, from the throne of God and the Lamb, he sees a river of life. Wherever this river grows, goes, there's these trees of life that flow, uh, that, that grow beside it. And the picture here is of the church gathered around the throne of Christ, receiving our life from him. And where this life flows, uh, uh, there's healing. It brings healings to the nations. It's an image of the life and abundance that we have when we draw our life from Christ. Jesus said the same thing to the woman at the well in John 4. He told her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The worship of Christ is the heart, it's the center of our life. It's the spring, the fountainhead from which the rest of our living should flow. So as we close, let us ask ourselves, what is the spring or the fountain from which you draw your life? What is the source of our thoughts, of our attitudes, of our affections? You know, do we draw our life from what we see on social media? 
what we read on the internet? Are we being shaped more by the city of man and, and the community of unbelievers? Or do we draw our life from Christ? Are we shaped by the life that we share together as his church? Are we living as people born in the city of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though we were once enemies, though we were once far off and strangers to your promises, we thank you that you have brought us near, that you have made us citizens, that you have made us your children. We thank you that because Jesus died and rose again, we can have a share in his sonship. That no matter what sins we have struggled with, no matter where we are from, yet in Christ you count us as born in your city. Thank you and praise you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.